0: This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. So I'm sitting here sipping my tea. It's uh, Thursday, August uh, 25th, people. August 25th, we've made it. Deep. Deep into the heart of August We have made it I'm sitting here sipping my tea out in the studio You're all familiar with that Unless you're a new listener Welcome new listener Let me just sip my tea one more time And uh, um, We're doing a special show today Because we have special Furniture in the studio We have A pair of chairs That came from The Mighty Gary Shanling's house. I am the lucky recipient of two pairs of chairs from the Mighty Gary Shanling House. I don't know why I'm calling it the Mighty Gary Shanling House, but I guess that's what I'm doing. Uh, So I have two pair. I have a pair of uh, beautiful leather chairs uh, uh, in the living room. That I have to tell you, for like five years, my husband and I were in search of the perfect leather chairs for the living room. And we did a lot of Craigslist chairs. Like we did like, oh, look, there's 50 bucks for some brown leather chairs. And when we go and we get them and they were brown leather chairs barely, but ah, just not right. No, oh, no, no, not right. And, uh, and then we had another pair that the dog ate at one point, so I had to get rid of those and got another pair from Craigslist. So we've just kind of just been living with not the perfect pair because, you know, if you really want the perfect pair... You got to spend some money. You got to spend some real money. You know, you got to go to you know Pottery Barn or something like that. And and my husband and I were basically like frugal Quakers. You know, we we like having nice things, but we don't have a ton of cash flow or income. Uh, you know, we're bordering on doing okay, middle class artist, creative types. And um, so you know, busting out. Fifteen hundred bucks for a pair of chairs, and you know, even though like the chairs that'll last a lifetime, and you'll like die, you probably sit in them and die in them. Probably, uh, we, we just we can't do it. You know, we'd rather spend it on traveling or something. But uh, so we just kind of I, I gave up on the perfect leather chairs. I just like whatever. We don't even sit in those chairs. They're just chairs that like are in the living room because that's what looks like should go there because that's what grownups do that kind of living room situation, we sit on the couch. We sit in the couch in front of the big TV, of course. Um, and then um, I had a, a, a chance uh, to peruse some things at Mr. Shandling's house, and there were these two chairs sitting there, and someone said, you know, you guys should take those chairs. <laughs> and we're sitting in the chairs, and we're like, wow, really? Like, you mean we could... We could have these chairs? They're like, yeah. I mean, you know, the situation was the way it was. I'm not gonna go into details, but and I was like, Okay, that'd be great. And so we decided to take the chairs and we were gonna come up in a few days and pick them up. And then when we came back up to pick them up, there was some other things, just small things. I have this I have a couple of beautiful little Buddhas from the garden. And if you guys didn't know, Gary was a practicing Buddhist. And um which I loved the Buddhas because it's like now when I see the little Buddha on the deck of outside my uh, bedroom door every morning, it's Gary's Buddha. It's Gary's Buddha. Gary's in the Buddha. Uh, But then there were these two other chairs in his office, and I was like, well, who's taking these? And they're like, you know, nobody right now. No one wants them. I'm like, can I, am I allowed to have two pairs of chairs? And they're like, sure, yeah, whatever you want, you know that kind of thing where you like can't believe that life is actually doing this for you. Here's the thing about these two chairs. These are the chairs that uh, that the very first time I went up and interviewed Gary for my very first podcast, we sat in these chairs. So these are the Gary podcast chairs. So I'm sitting in the Gary podcast chairs today. Uh, anyway, that is just one long explanation of an introduction of what the hell's going on here at the studio today. Uh, Logan is sitting on the ground. He's not sitting in the other Gary chair because he's monitoring the MP3 player. But Logan is wearing a Ken fucking Sabe T-shirt, which is my Uncle Pat's <laughs> book. You must go look up Patrick Carlin, Kien fucking Sabe. The fucking is like, you know, with the little hashtag and all of that. And check out kind of my, my, my Uncle Pat, my dad's brother's version of braindroppings. I'm telling you, Patrick's mind will blow your mind. That's all I have to say. I'm taking another sip of tea. Hold on. All um. right. So we're here in August. Uh, it's been a few weeks. I know. We had those two great shows with Steve McIntosh and Integral Theory and about um, what the fuck is going on in American politics, actually. And I hope you've enjoyed them. And I hope you enjoy Steve and his perspective and Integral. We're going to be doing more shows like that. I'm, I'm very fascinated with this perspective and have been for years. Um, So I was really excited to share it with you guys. And I felt like I was doing, I don't know, my citizen duty this summer by at least talking about politics in some way that is above and beyond a different conversation than the one we get every day, which is uh, there's 15,000 more emails that Hillary hasn't shared. And Trump, uh, as of yesterday, was now saying he's not going to deport a bunch of immigrants. So all of the red meat Republicans that he built his whole campaign around are abandoning ship. But the greatest news about it is, this is my favorite part, is that Ann Coulter, (laughs) because of who she is, because she's just about you know, profiting off of red meat, racism, and insanity, went and wrote a book specifically for this crowd because Trump is her man. Like, like, there's a man, there's a male Ann Coulter, although we would all have to have a deep conversation about how the fact that Ann Coulter probably is a man. But that's not saying anything about transgender people or women or men or anything. Just we were all confused about who Ann Coulter actually is. Um, she's a book coming out this week, this week, about her big, fat, scary immigration stance. And then Trump goes and does a complete 180 degrees on her. Oh, my God, I think it makes all of this worthwhile. It just might possibly make Trump and Ann Coulter and all of the angst that they put me through worthwhile to have this moment of schadenfreude. Oh, I hadn't even really processed this until this moment. I'm feeling it right now. The deep gratitude I have for this moment. I have deep gratitude for this schadenfreude and for Gary's chairs. So it's very interesting gratitude. Big, big, wide well that gratitude is can hold all sorts of things. (laughs) So anyway, like I was saying, I hope you enjoyed those last two shows. Uh, This show is uh, going to be not really long, just me kind of catching up uh, some thoughts off the top of my head, that kind of show, um, a chance to just, um, I don't know, see what I'm even thinking about because my mouth is moving. I mean, that's kind of how my brain works. This is what I realized I've been in, um, not writer's block, but creative, holy shit terror block around working on this new book proposal. And I've been working, I've been going back through my journals the last eight years because I want to talk about the last eight years of my life and this profound journey I've been on about f- finding out who I am in the world and what I'm capable of and, um, and <clears throat> so I wanted to go through my journals. And that was kind of the easy part of research. Like, oh, I'll do that. That'll give me something to do. And it's been great. It's been great. But ultimately, the big question is, what the fuck is this book about? And, and do I even still know how to write? And so last week, after 10 people, including my therapist, just said to me, I don't know, maybe you should just start writing. <laughs> it's kind of amazing if you do, if you're a writer, or if you're a painter, Or if you're a songwriter or whatever you are, thinking about doing the thing isn't really doing the thing at all. You're not going to figure out what your book is about by thinking about writing it. You're not going to think about what your next album is about by thinking about writing it. You just have to sit down and do it. I'm also reading Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic book, which I had a lot of resistance to at the beginning. I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Gilbert. I mean, I wish she was my best friend. I wish she was sitting in this other Gary chair today so she and I could talk about everything because she's an interview. Like her, Anne Lamott was the one like initially, but man, if I could get Elizabeth Gilbert in here to talk with me, that would be awesome. But I'm reading her book a lot and a lot of her book is just about um, uh, just uh, giving yourself permission and, and and trusting the process that once it begins, we we want to believe we're in charge of it all, but we're not. So um, that's kind of like this podcast. I can sit around all week thinking about I've got nothing to say. I have zero to say. I don't know what the point of the podcast is. I don't have anyone to interview this week. I was too busy or too lazy to align someone up. Uh, The stars aren't aligned for that right now. Whatever it is. So I'm just going to do a podcast where I talk out loud and, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And then, of course, it always comes around where I, like, look down at the thing and it's like, oh, my God, I've been talking for 45 minutes. You poor people. (laughs) But I talk and I write to understand even what I'm thinking or how I'm holding the world. That's how it works for me. Maybe it works differently for other people. But I encourage you, if it works that way for you, get talking, get writing, get Strumming, get that blob of clay and slap it on the wheel. Whatever your thing is, whatever you're into making in the world, maybe you make quilts out of cat collars, then you need to get the cat collars out and start making some quilts. That's all I'm saying. So here I am today making this podcast, and I, uh, Don't have, you know, we'll see where it goes. Okay, so I'm just going to start off at the top of my list, which, um, well, we'll just talk about where I've been the last few weeks. Well, I've been home the last few weeks working on my book. But before that, I was in Jamestown, New York. Uh, Maybe some of you heard I um, am donating my dad's stuff, his career stuff, to the National Comedy Center. And so their uh, yearly Lucy Fest was uh, the first week of August. And so I went and it was great. Lewis Black did a show. Trevor Noah did a show. Brian Regan did a show. I saw Brian and I saw Lewis's shows. I did not see Trevor's shows. Uh, but I met Trevor. Okay, so here's this great story. So one of the reasons I was in Jamestown was because Rain Pryor, Richard's daughter, Kitty, Bruce, Lenny's daughter, and I had this panel conversation. It wasn't a panel. It was just a conversation, the three of us on stage. It was way too short. It was like 45 minutes long. I I had 22 questions written down on a piece of paper. We got to two. Okay, that's how it was. We need, we need three hours, the three of us, and we're thinking about some way to do that, uh, some sort of one-off way of doing that. So anyway we were the early Friday show at this beautiful theater in Jamestown, New York called The Reg, or The Reg, R-E-G, Lena, L-E-N-N-A. Gorgeous, old, old school, um, you know, burlesque theater. I mean, Lucille Ball had been on this stage, uh, which just made me weep every time I thought of it. And it's where I did my solo show last year there and all that. So we had this panel and then We knew that Trevor was the next show up. And there's only like one backstage area at the Reg. So Rain and Kitty and I were backstage after our little thing. And none of us had been on stage in a long time. And even if we had, it doesn't matter. Because when you get off stage, you have an enormous amount of energy running through your body. You are freaking adrenaline out. And so <laughs> we were had all this adrenaline in our body, and we're in this backstage area, which is not huge, and we are just very excited and determined to meet Trevor Noah. So we're back there, and we're like, where's Trevor? Where's Trevor? And we, like, look in the green room, and he's not there, and there's, like, a kind of a closed dressing room. We, we, met, we met the guy who was the opener. I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. And um, we're like, where's Trevor? And then we're like, oh, my God, I think he's in the bathroom. <laughs> so we're standing out in the hallway, kind of like right near the men's bathroom door. And poor Trevor Noah, innocent Trevor Noah, a young man who has taken over the shoes of John Stewart, which I can't even imagine the life he's lived the last two years, um, is in this weird town in the middle of freaking nowhere in New York City to do this show at this gorgeous theater. And he walks out of the bathroom after just washing his hands. I would like to point that out. He did wash his hands. And there is Rain and I. I think Kitty was somewhere down the hall. And Kitty's a little more of a grown-up than Rain and I. Rain and I are like schoolgirls. We're like, oh, my God, it's Trevor Noah. Oh, my God. And um, I think our energy bombarded him. Plus, he had just walked out of the bathroom. Plus, it's like 20 minutes to his show. I mean, he needs time to, like, get his shit together, if you know what I mean. Uh, let alone whatever he was doing in the bathroom. And um, the look, the poor, like, deer-in-the-headlights look on this guy's face. Um, <laughs> I felt like such a schmo. And I'm like, hi, I'm Kelly Carlin. And Rain's like, hi, I'm Rain Pryor. Oh, my God, we're really excited to meet you and everything like that. And, um, yeah, we were doofuses. We were doofus fangirls. It was fun. i He was lovely. We, he took pictures with all of us. I need to find those pictures. And... Um, and he was great, and I—I'm pretty sure he had no idea who we were. <laughs> Maybe he did. I'm—I'm I'm guessing he knows who our dads were, uh, but I don't know. But it was—he was lovely. But it was—it was really fun. So that was—that was one little moment that I had that week. Um, Lewis did a great show. Lewis is about to do a run on Broadway. He's doing Monday nights, I think, over like eight Mondays this fall on on a Broadway stage. So if you're in the New York City area this fall and want to see Lewis Black, check it out. Just saw his show. It's great. You know, he's he's great. He's For me, he's like one of the people that I have left who like is helping me kind of wade through what the fuck is going on in this planet. Um, <clears throat> so I love and adore him and got to hang out with him a bit. And one of the places we hung out was, which I wanted to tell you guys about, uh, this place called the Chautauqua Institute. Now – I can't really do it justice but um, because you will have to Google it after you listen to this entire podcast. Uh, But this is my take on the Chautauqua Institute. Uh, My friend, Journey, who runs the National Comedy Center, she says, look, next year, the National Comedy Center and the Chautauqua Institute are going to be doing a week of programming at Chautauqua called Comedy in the Human Condition. And I'd love for you to stay a couple of days and get the feel for the place and see what it's like. Now, I'd heard of the Chautauqua Institute, I, kind of, was always been like in the back of the thing. I thought it was like music and arts and a little think tanky thing. I didn't really know what it was. And then last year, when um, I was in Jamestown and Harold Ramis's kids were there, Harold's son um, went and stayed for a few days and he was like, oh my God, I want to live there. And then I got a little glimpse of it in February. But I have to tell you, so I, I go to this place. I stay in this hotel that's built in 1885, the hotel. I'm dead certain that every single room in that hotel someone has died in the bed I mean it has to be just as far as like numbers goes as years and um, so it's this old Victorian hotel and surrounding it are these all these buildings all these homes I don't know there's like 300 homes there maybe 500 I don't know it's a little village on the lake of Chautauqua and it's 90% Victorian homes so when you get there in a car and you park the car and suddenly though you are in a Victorian village. So you kind of feel like you're at Disneyland in Victoria land <laughs> or Victorian land. And yet, you know, you've got the internet and a little HDTV in your room, which your room looks like kind of a Victorian hotel room. So the mind is a it's you're kind of in this liminal space. You're somewhere between 2016 and 1885. Not quite sure where that is. And then the other part of it is, is that this place is this it's open only 9 weeks a year and it's a place where people come to summer on the lake and at the same time listen to lectures by like famous brains and minds and people who are policymakers. I mean, nine presidents have spoken there. And they're doing like serious, like the week I was there was, uh, was on the future of cities. So there was this serious urban planning lecture conversation, which I was fascinated by, even though I have no interest in urban planning, but I felt like this, I'm a good citizen. I mean, it's like, it's like being the best citizen ever. Like you know, people come in and and talk about money and finance and cities and psychology and AIDS and Zika and finance reform and politics. I mean, you name the academic thing, and they're having a lecture about it at 1045 in the morning there. Now, the other thing they do there is they do the arts. So like maybe during the day, Bill Clinton's lecturing about the Clinton Foundation or about AIDS in Africa or something. And then at night, um, oh, Yo-Yo Ma's playing at the amphitheater, which is 50 feet away from my hotel, because that's how it works at the Chautauqua. And you just get this little scanner thing and you just, everything is free and you just go sit down. Well, Yo-Yo Ma wasn't there the night I was there. There was a ballet there, a Charlotte ballet, which was like edgy, interesting stuff. Now, I will say the average person sitting in this lecture area it's called the amphitheater was probably 70 years old there was a lot of white hair there but there were a lot of families and there were a lot of kids and a lot of other things but it's this amazing place it's like this kind of Emersonian utopian um elite and elite and like the good word of the elite like like intellectual like trying to think about the big questions of the world. And so there's this academic part, there's this arts part, it's beautiful, it's on a lake, there's sailing and swimming and all sorts of outdoor activities. And then there's this, there's this fourth leg, because in 1885, the fourth leg was a big part of people's life, which is the worship part, the church part, the religious part. Yeah, yeah. I know it's a little uncomfortable in this day and age, 2016. Um, so I was a little wary about that part. You know, there's like the Presbyterian house and the Episcopalian house, but then I also noticed there's like Buddhist stuff going on and Muslim stuff. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to dip my toe into everything. <clears throat> so the first morning, I woke up there. I went to the 9:15 worship. I did. I went to worship. Okay, I'm a communal person. I like to sing with a lot of people. So I knew there was there was a great pipe organ there. I knew there was a chorus. I said, Okay, they'll be singing. That'll be nice. And, you know, I I I like I, I'm not a church person, but I love being with people who are seeking the transcendent, let's say. Um, you know, it's why I go to Esalen. You know, it's why I go on Buddhist retreats. It's why I've taught meditation. You know, it's why I do some of the things I do. I love community. And I love community that's coming together, that that it's not about our ego. It's about something beyond the ego. Let's put it that way. So I see the description of the minister that's going to be lecturing all week long at Chautauqua and... Um, I, I, I think to myself, this this might be okay. He described himself as a poet, peacemaker, minister from the Church of Scotland. I thought, okay, anyone who's going to define themselves as poet and peacemaker before the minister part, I like this man's relationship to the ego. I think I can handle this. So I went to the worship, the organ, there was singing, there was him singing, like in these people... We're all like, like I said, in their 60s and 70s and 80s, they all knew how to do the hymns, like because they've been singing them since they were five years old. I do not know the hymns. I do not know these things. It's awkward. It's weird. And there's like the word God is in the thing. And you know, I have a big, broad definition of what that God could be, but I wasn't quite sure what their definition of the God could be. You know, and certainly the people who wrote the hymns, you know, their definition of the God thing. So it was a little awkward. Oh, God, this is kind of weird. Um, But then the minister started to talk. Oh, and then someone does read from the actual Bible. Yeah, a little uncomfortable moment for me, too. I was like, oh, really? We're still sticking with that book, huh? But then the minister got up, and within the first, mm, I'd say, three or four sentences, he had mentioned uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, my first Buddhist teacher, um, a friend of Mr. Gary Shandling's, actually. Uh, He mentioned mandalas. And the symbol of wholeness that mandalas are through Jungian psychology. And then he mentioned Teilhard de Chardin, who's a, a thinker and a philosopher and who was, I think it was a Catholic priest, maybe, Jesuit, Jesuit priest, uh, thinker, really, philosopher, and had written about uh, the evolution of consciousness. He was the f- one of the first people to, re- to, to write and to think and to talk about evolution of consciousness. This within the first three or four sentences, and I thought... <laughs> oh, my God, I have found my new favorite place on earth. I mean, really, it was fantastic. So um, I got to spend four days there. I would, like, go into Jamestown and do my comedy stuff, whatever I was required to do, and then I would skedaddle back in my rent-a-car to the beautiful Chautauqua Institute. And it was such a beautiful manifestation and symbol of where my life is right now and the transition that I'm in which is creating some healthy boundaries, some very clear definitions about my participation in the comedy world and in my participation in my father's world versus what's really important and meaningful to me. And as you know, as being a listener to this podcast, the conversations I have here is really what my life is about. Comedy has been a fantastic, I don't know, even uh, boat. Comedy has been a boat for me to get from one shore to the other. And, but that other shore was never about staying in the comedy boat. It was always about understanding that it was a transportation for me to get to some place that I was going. And part of that place was um, finding my community, Uh, finding people who are interested in having these conversations, finding an audience, if you want to call it that, um, having a conversation about comedy and the joy of it and the friends and the community I found in it. But it's ultimately not the conversation I'm really here, I feel, to have. It's not mine to have. It's an accident. It's like my dad in the First Amendment, you know, people always used to ask him about, you know, well, you got arrested for censorship and then someone played your album and it went all the way to the Supreme Court and my dad said, "Yeah, that's an accident of history. I didn't do anything. I was just doing my work in the world and this thing happened." Um, so I'm not an expert on it. I'm just a person who participated in the event. It's kind of like my life was been with comedy. I'm the daughter of someone who was a comedian. I'm a funny person. Part of me wants to be Carol Burnett for sure and, you know, hopes to be able to play in that realm again. But it's not the work. It's not who I am. It's not what I've dreamed. I've not, you know, dreamt of talking about comedy my whole life or being in it. So so this Chautauqua Institute was really, it was the perfect experience for me because I, I could go and I could support Jamestown and support the National Comedy Center, which I am so dedicated to help creating and building and letting people know about. I'm so excited. We got a tour of the buildings and what they're planning, and I can't even begin to tell you how fucking far out it is what they're going to do with technology and artifacts and the visitor experience. It's There's nothing like it on the planet, and there's certainly nothing, as we already know, that that honors the art form of comedy like this place is going to do. So I'm really excited to be passionate about that and put my focus there. But I'm just ready to have other conversations now. So so I'm in this weird space, as you guys know. I mean, I've been away from social media for 10 weeks now, part of which was to get away from the conversation about my dad. And of course, we have news. If you haven't heard... I mean, you know, this is the awkward thing about being in the position I'm in, is that every once in a while, I do get to talk about my dad, and it's for a really good reason. And the really good reason now is because he has an album coming out in about two and a half weeks, three weeks. Yeah, I said that. He has an album coming out. The guy's been dead for eight years. He's got an album coming out. All I can say is, if you want a glimpse of it or want to hear it, just go on Amazon it's on pre-order. It's called I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die. Uh, you if you're a serious XM subscriber, you will get an exclusive listen to it starting September 1st. We're going to be playing it a lot on Serious XM. There's going to be a lot of conversation about it in the press. There already is. There's a Rolling Stone article, there's a New York Times, there's a Vulture thing. So, I do get to talk about my dad, you know, for the album and stuff like that. But it's real it's it's really cool. The album is this. It's a little piece of art. And I have to tell you, the person who um, is most responsible for it is Logan, who's our podcast person here, who's sitting on the floor right now, <laughs> who just did an interview with SiriusXM, by the way. Uh, this is Logan's baby. I mean, you know, I held his hand. uh, You know, I brought him in. But uh, he birthed this thing. It would not be what it is today without Logan, trust me, uh, on every level. So um, that's exciting. That's fun. Um, But that's not what my life is about, talking about my dad's stuff. But I'm excited. I'm excited about the album. Uh, It's I'm most excited because it is a little piece of art, actually. Uh, And you have to buy it on vinyl. Logan and I have decided we just have to tell everybody that they're going to just have to print more vinyl because the artwork in the middle, it's one that opens up. It's like a double album. Even though it's a single album, it's like a double album. The artwork alone, the um, liner notes written by Lewis Black alone, you must, I mean, it's really, yeah, you'll get the CD or you'll get a digital download of it if you get an MP3. Just, you know, if you're a baby boomer and you're listening, you know what I'm talking about. Remember when you'd get the vinyl album and you would just study every square inch of both sides or the inside or the liner or whatever it is? That's the kind of experience this album is. So you need to get it on vinyl. And you kids who think vinyl is this hip thing, it is. And this is a really hip version of it. (laughs) Look, we have vinyl for everybody here, people. And you know you Gen Xers. You're like me. You grew up with vinyl. You know what to do. It comes with a oh, yeah, and it comes with the download, too. So don't worry. You can put it on your iPod. Uh, you people don't even use iPods, do they? I've decided my iPod is like this ancient technology already. I'll pull out an iPod at my party, and people are like, what is that? I'm saying, well, this thing holds 16,000 songs, motherfucker. So that's what this is. Uh, yes. So anyway... <laughs> Um. So I've done Chautauqua. I have did Jamestown. Uh, we did the, talked about the GC album, and uh, another little thing about the dad thing is I um I'm actually going through my dad's stuff, like stuff with a capital S, uh, the stuff that I'm donating to the National Comedy Center, and uh, really going through it and really looking at it all and deciding exactly what's going, what I'm keeping, and that was hard. It was hard to do that. I'm. It's. This is a really weird time for me. I'm really excited to say goodbye to all this stuff. And at the same time, the three-year-old in me is not happy. She wants to possess her daddy forever. So you could say I'm a little bit of two minds, but uh, the adult will win in this one. Uh, but it's, it is, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. So I'm glad there's an album coming out because the new stuff, dad's got new stuff. It's great. Um, So one of the things I wanted to talk about just for a few minutes um, on this shorter show we're doing today is kind of sort of maybe what I've been talking about already, but not so much. I want to talk about the power of saying no and what that means in your life. And saying no, for me, used to be impossible, I don't think I had the word no in my vocabulary until probably about 10 years ago or so. Probably around 40, I learned how to say no. So i been already been on the planet for quite a while. Uh, and you people out there, you know who you are. You know if you are a person who says yes to everything. Here's the funny thing, though. So I was a codependent person. Still am. Will be the rest of my life. Uh, And so saying yes was just kind of just the way I lived. I mean, I didn't even just say the words yes. People just expected me to go along with everything. She'll go along. She'll go along. She goes along with everything. She's easy. She's so easy to be around. If people describe you that way, it's probably because you have no backbone. (laughs) I'm not insulting you. Trust me. I am speaking of myself thoroughly. Uh, so, I yeah, I would just go along with everything. And that got me into a lot of trouble. Bad relationships, doing too many drugs, spending 11 years of my life in my first marriage. That was a long 11 years of yeses that really could have, could have been truncated by just the first no. But no, 11 years of yeses. Uh, a lot of enmeshment. Enmeshment, codependence, all that fun stuff. Uh, a lot of yeses for everyone else. Because here's the thing about those yeses is um, with every yes, with with whatever you're saying yes to, at the same time you're saying no to something else. But it's these are all disempowered yeses and no's. They're not... Thinking through conscious, I know who I am, what I want, yeses or nos. These are the unconscious ones. The I'll just go along to smooth things over type of yeses. Um, Or I'll just let this this thing play out to see where it goes. And I don't really want to steer the ship because I don't really want to make a decision about it. Sound familiar to anyone out there? Just wondering. Uh, So I was a yeser for a long, 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 long time. And then... um, then I went and got trained as a therapist, and when you get trained as a therapist, you uh, your ass is on the line, because not only is your ass on the line, but your client's psyche's ass is on the line, and you got to learn about healthy boundaries. I'm pretty sure the whole reason I spent $35,000 to get my master's in psychology was to learn how to have fucking healthy boundaries. <laughs> I mean, I learned a lot of other stuff, and I got a lot of good stuff out of it, but I'm not a therapist today, so I'm not paying back that student loan based on my client's fees. Uh, But I learned the hell out of healthy boundaries. I learned what to say no to and what to say yes to because I had to model that for my clients too. And if you are like an enmeshed, boundaryless therapist, you will be in the insane asylum in about six months because you will take on all of your clients' shit and you will not be there for your clients and your clients will get worse. So – I knew, at least for other people, I had to learn how to do this. And I I learned it for myself. And then a few years later when I got my coach's training is really when I learned about this thing about being in choice. We always think about being in choice as about two options. But what they taught me was that that's not being in choice. Either or isn't really a choice. There always has to be a third thing to really be in choice. And there should at least be three at the You know, you could add 50 if you want. I mean, that's a little confusing. But, you know, three to six would be a nice, healthy, you know, what how do I want to be in the world with these things? You know, like a perspective or, or a, a, you know, a direction. And you should have a nice choice on your menu, you know, instead of either or. And uh, that's when I learned about this thing about when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And when you're saying no to something you're actually saying yes to something else. So I've been doing a lot of gronking and thinking about the last eight years, because I want to write about it, I want to talk about it in a way that's um, entertaining, and yet also hits people in a way that's pertinent to their lives. You know, I don't want to be a fucking narcissistic navel gazer like I actually am I actually have some purpose in the planet um so I decided after my father died I had this very huge beautiful conscious revelation that I was going to say yes to things that scared me that would take me out of my comfort zone and so I said yes to a ton of things I mean (laughs) uh producing the green room Developing a solo show and premiering it in Montreal, even though I hadn't memorized it. <laughs> um, interviewing comedians for an internet uh, for, you know, a Sirius XM. I mean, just he, I just said yes to things that I had no idea if I was capable of doing or not, but everyone around me believed I was capable of doing. So I was just going to say yes and jump out of my comfort zone and, and I, so I said yes to everything, all sorts of things, um, people, places, things, events. Um, I just jumped into a huge bunch of life that I had not, that I'd been denying myself in some way. Because even though I'd been saying yes to other things in my life, I, I was basically saying no to myself a lot. So I, this was a big yes to me. Like, I'm going to stretch Stretch, stretch, stretch. So I want you to think about where you are in your life. Like, are you in a part of your life right now where you need to start saying yes to things that scare you a little bit, that um, take you out of your life that's feeling a little too small and cramped right now? And you're hearing maybe a calling towards a bigger life. And what, even though you can't really see what's going to happen if you say that yes, but there's some part of you that it's kind of a scared excitement if you think about saying yes, like maybe that's where you're at in your life. Maybe there's a big yes. I, I said to people at that time in my life, I've, just, I've, I've printed a big yes on my forehead to the universe. I'm telling the universe, yes, I'm available. In a very conscious way, though, it's a very conscious yes. It's a yes for me and scaring the shit out of myself for the good of expanding my life. And so I did and did that a lot. And, oh, my God, look where I am. It's amazing what yeses can get you, what big, leaping, powerful yeses can get you. So I highly recommend that if you're in the need of a big, powerful, conscious yes – Turn this podcast off right now and go do it. Go do that thing. Go say yes to that person. Go say yes to that trip to Ecuador. Go say yes to that new job in Reykjavik. Say yes to that girl at the coffee shop that you know wants to go out and have a date with you. Say yes to those things that scare the shit out of you and are going to help you step into a bigger life. Or you may be like me which I have been saying yes a lot for like a lot for almost eight years. A lot of yeses, as I just described. And maybe it's time to start saying no. To start deciding that it's all great, but it doesn't fit anymore in a different way. Maybe, maybe... Life has gotten too scattershot. Maybe you've got your hands in 25 different pies. Or you're feeling like something has kind of run its cycle and that it's kind of dead. It's not, doesn't have any legs anymore, doesn't have any life in it. Or or you're just feeling a call to connect deep within yourself, back to you, back to some voice inside. Where because you've been doing and doing and doing and doing for so long, you've kind of put the being on the side and you need to now say no. No to every time someone wants to go out and have drinks. No to that trip that you're obligated to go on with your family every year because that's just what people do. Uh, No to social media. Maybe it's time. Maybe you've been feeling overwhelmed and disgusted like I was and just needed some time for yourself. Uh, you know I highly recommend this one. The no to social media is important. Um, and maybe it's no to opportunities that, oh, my God, that sounds kind of cool. I was having lunch with someone today, and they were like, hey, would you be willing to, like, teach at a university setting? And I don't know. You could teach about – um, comedy and and the, the importance of comedy in the culture or something like that. Now, three years ago or two years ago, I would have been like, oh my, god. well, first of all, teaching at a university, I would love to fucking teach at a university. Are you kidding? I am a fucking university, just suck up. I love those kind of institutions. Um, and two or three years ago, that would have been like, oh my god, that's a great idea. I should do that. I could do this and this and this and this. But I looked at her and I was like, you know what? That is the last thing in the world I want to be talking about <laughs> is comedy. I'm kind of saying no to comedy. That's kind of what's going on for me right now. I I have some ways in which I'm dedicated to the art form, but it's not my art form. I'm an accident of history. I happen to be a daughter of... I happened to come out of my mother's vagina, and she happened to be married to a comedian. And I happened to have an amazing life because he was one of the best comedians of the 20th century. But it's not my thing. Yes, I've always wanted to be Carol Burnett, but I'm 53. I don't think I'm going to be Carol Burnett. I would like to do some sketch comedy, and I might have a chance to do that. But that's not... I didn't go that route. I didn't do that in my 20s and my 30s. It's not what I did. I did other things. Um, and I didn't do that in my 40s either. So I'm saying no to certain things now. And it's going to be weird. In about three weeks, I told the world that I'd be coming out of my social media sabbatical. I don't know how much of it I'm going to come out of. Uh Most of me doesn't want to come out of it at all. (laughs) Part of me does miss the community. I do miss my friends there. I think I will have to reinvent how I'm with the world out there. But one of the things I know I'm not going to be doing is talking about my father. Unless I'm promoting his album, I know, I know, I know, I get it. If there's a moment like that, I will be talking about my father. But if you're a fan... And you want to tell me how much he, you love him? That's lovely, but I don't I don't want to receive that anymore. And that's really hard for me to say out loud because I feel like I'm being a bad daughter. But I'm done, you guys, and you need to be done with me. And if you Don't want to have a relationship with me outside of my father. That is perfectly fine with me. I am so okay with that. Go off and have a beautiful life and talk about my dad (laughs) to all of your friends (laughs) and to whoever else you want to talk to him about. But I don't want to be having the conversation anymore. I'm tired of seeing his face. I'm tired of hearing his name. I'm tired of hearing about what he means to the world. It's not that I don't respect any of that. It's not that I don't adore that. It's not that I don't have fucking 10,000 pounds of pride around all of that stuff. I just can't do it anymore. It's killing me. I had an amazing conversation about a little over a year ago. I think it was probably July of 2015. It was a few months before my book was to come out. And... I got a hold of Roseanne Cash because she and I had met uh, once and we'd become acquaintances. We actually met on Twitter, of course, because that's what's so great about Twitter, right? You can just talk to anybody. Um, of course, I never brought up her father. <laughs> But I did say to her, you know, I want to have a book event in New York, and I would love to have something at the, um, the 97th Street Y, 92nd Street Y, whatever, that big Y thing where they have those big, cool events. I wanted to be a cool kid having a fucking cool event at the Y. And, of course, the Y wanted a really big name with me because I am just the daughter of, and they weren't interested in just me. And I thought, well, I could have a conversation with Roseanne Cash about having to deal with legacy, having to you know, deal with all this stuff being the daughter of, coming out of the shadow, all of that kind of stuff because I know she'd she'd gone through it. I mean, you should read her memoir. It's so beautiful the way she talks about it and her last 3 albums and so she says to me, "Kelly, I don't talk about my dad in public anymore. This isn't a conversation I'm interested in." And she was really worried that it was going to hurt my feelings. And instead what I said to her was, you are my hero. <laughs> I want to be just like you when I grow up someday. She said that her last album, River, the River and the Thread, which for me is one of the most profound albums, it's just it's so beautiful. I listened to it every day as I got start, as I got ready to go on stage at the Falcon during my solo show run there for five weeks. She said to me that the last three albums were her way of dealing with her grief and saying goodbye to her father. And they were a trilogy, and she was done. And if you look at her last three albums and you read her memoir, you will understand that trilogy for her and how she is done. She says, I'm a separate person now. I'm doing the most profound, best work I've ever done in my life. And the last thing I want to do is circle round a back back and talk about my father. So that's where I'm at. I feel like I'm like at album two. That's where I'm at. And I'm, I'm working on this new book, which is going to be about the last eight years of my life, which obviously will be talking a bit about my relationship with my father and especially my inner relationship with him. Um, you know, all the voices in my head that tell me who I'm supposed to be and all of that. And then going out in the world and being fully embracing being my father's daughter, which I've done. And I've walked through the fire. I remember before I started the solo show, I didn't even – wasn't going to do the solo show. This was God – 2010, 2011, <clears throat> five years ago, and Paul Prevenza and I are sitting around my backyard here, and he says to me, um, "You know, you've embraced your father's legacy these last few years. Um, why did you do that?" You know, and I said to him, "Well, I could, I could have just decided to be to stay invisible, and to not do any interviews, to let other people handle all that stuff, handle his legacy, handle his life's work out in the world." um all of that i said but that would have been false for me um because the only way you can ever be done with something is to be is to go through it not around it and so i knew i had to go through this this fire of being the daughter of and uh and i have and it's been great it's been a great ride um and i've gotten to be a separate person too during all of it and a lot of you completely understand this and have supported me. And it's been really, really beautiful. Um, but I'm in this interesting liminal space now of letting it go. And so I feel like I'm I'm not quite, I'm not at the river of the thread part of Roseanne Cash's thing where I'm fully standing in my own and all of that. I'm, I'm still in the middle of it somewhere letting it go. But one of the ways I'm really letting it go is on social media. So uh, if you wonder why I, if I come back, if you wonder why I um, don't reply, if you say something about my dad, or um, if I disappear from your feed, <laughs> you may have been muted or blocked. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't mean I don't love you, and I, I think it's great that you're a fan and all of that. I just want to um, ask you to respect my new way of being in the world, just as I would respect yours to whatever you're saying no to in your life right now. I mean, maybe there's something like this that you that you're ready to say no to that you know you have to put down that you're done with, and that it you know it keeps tempting you back, it keeps alluring you sometimes it's a relationship, God, we all know those right the unhealthy relationship um sometimes it's the unhealthy work in the world we're doing a job maybe um maybe it's an unhealthy way of looking at things you know or your relationship with politics you know in this election, maybe it's killing you. Um, maybe you need to just say no to coverage, you know, or, you know, blocking all the politics stuff off of your feeds or saying no to social media until the campaign's over or whatever. Whatever it is, there's something, there possibly is something in you today, in your life today, that, um, that you need to say no to. So join me. Join me in saying no, which, as we know, ultimately... When you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. So say yes to yourself, to your life, to your soul, to your space, to your time. Say yes to the world that you want to live in. Shape it with one easy word. I just want to thank Logan for being here and uh, operating all the right buttons as usual. And of course, for the amazing job he did with the George Carlin album. You'll have to come on next week and talk a little bit about that. I want to thank all of you for listening and being a supporter of this podcast. We are now on SoundCloud and iTunes and probably a bunch of other stuff. But Logan and I are kind of running the show here now. Uh, in about a month, things are going to change a little bit. I'm going to have a couple of commercials on the show, so know that that's coming, but that's just a way to help support our work here on the podcast. Um, and before I go, I really want to steer you towards something, which is my new website, which is my reintroduction of myself to the world. So please come see my new website, kellycarlin.com, sign up for my mailing list, Um, I'm going to be doing some blogging, Uh, I'm going to be doing some events, I'm going to be doing some teaching in the future too. So if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff and want to be connected to me, and what I'm thinking and what I'm doing in the world, I'd love for you to be a member of my mailing list and uh, be a part of my community. Um, So we can further this conversation. And uh, I think that's it. So go turn off your phones, turn off your TV, go outside smell a tree or a squirrel or something. Bye-bye.
1: took the long way home just to end up in your arms that's why i'm going